Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Welcome back to another podcast episode. In fact, this is episode 101, and I don't know, is that kind of anticlimactic? I'm not sure, because now that we already hit 100, what are we going for? What's the next milestone? That's what I want to know. Inquiring minds. But regardless, I hope that you all enjoyed the interview with Matt Wehmeyer. That was a huge blessing for me, just to be able to reconnect with him and interview him, hear his thoughts. Uh, Again, just really appreciate the book that he wrote on the subject. It's very readable and written for uh, an understandable uh, read through. Some people try to write, you know, to sound smart. And he is a smart guy, obviously, but he writes in a way that makes it understandable for people. And I would just really appreciate that because I'm not a smart guy. So I need those kinds of things. So we're going to try to finish up the baptism series, which some of you are thinking, praise the Lord, we want to be done with this series. And it definitely has gone a little longer than I thought. And this episode in particular might be very long if I'm trying to finish everything, but I think it's been worthwhile. I know I've been encouraged by a couple people who have reached out, just said they've really appreciated the episodes. So I don't take that lightly. I do think that this is an important discussion to have, uh, especially among believers, because it is one of those things where uh, we all are trying to do the best we can to serve the Lord, to understand scripture. And I think this is one of those things where if we understand baptism appropriately as churches, we do have stronger churches. And so this is the Lord willing last episode in the series, not meaning that we will never talk about baptism again. We definitely will. But just as far as the culmination of the series, I think that this is fitting. And the reason I would describe this episode as the culmination of the series is because today we're going to talk about a positive presentation of what baptism is. So we've spent a lot of our time talking about the Reformed uh, Presbyterian or Reformed uh, position on baptism and what that entails with regard to the covenant of grace and circumcision being integral. And I think it is helpful to talk about comparisons, contrasts, but today I want to try to provide the positive presentation of what scripture talks about with regard to baptism and then compare that uh, with how the paedo-baptist position, the reformed paedo-baptist position, describes baptism and its significance. And Lord willing, we'll also tack on a little bit at the end with regard to the mode of baptism and and why that is or is not significant. So jumping right in, before we talk about baptism as it's presented in the Gospels, I should say as a side note, there's a bit of a debate about where baptism comes from. And the two main options, I guess we could say there's maybe three main options, but some of them might interrelate would be proselyte baptism. That seems to have uh, heavy favorites uh, among the New Testament scholarship community where uh, baptism was viewed uh, in continuation with the Jewish tradition of baptizing a proselyte who was converting to Judaism. Uh, or some scholars have thought that it's related to the washing practice related to repentance at Qumran when somebody would confess their sins, etc. And some people also have put forward that baptism is related to the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament. So it is an interesting debate, but 
of in my understanding, and I think most people would probably agree with this, it's not actually essential to the debate because the Bible does give plenty of evidence to understand baptism in and of itself. So whether it was proselyte baptism or washings of Qumran or Levitical washings in the mikvot, those things are not essential to the argument because we do have plenty of evidence within the biblical text itself which describe the purpose and significance of baptism. So either way, uh, and there may be other options as well, but those are three of the main options that are thrown out there. But in, in my mind, uh, there aren't as significant benefits to be gained in going down those roads, exploring those, because we don't have full knowledge of the pre-New Testament era and what that looked like. But if we jump right into the biblical texts, we are able to glean observations about the New Testament world and what baptism uh, signified. So jumping in, I think it's a helpful starting point to look at Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the Great Commission, because in the Great Commission, we have Christ's command to the church, his, his marching orders, as it were. And he says in verse 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So if you look at this text, the very last section of Matthew here, Matthew's giving uh, instructions from from Christ to, to his followers, his disciples. There is only one uh, main verb here, one finite verb. It's an imperative, and that's to make disciples. So everyone acknowledges when they exegete this text that making disciples is the primary focus of this text. And so making disciples is primary, and the participles which define that or say how that discipling process takes place is baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them. So those two participles, baptizing and teaching, um, are how that takes place, what that looks like. You are making disciples by baptizing and by teaching. So at the outset, I think this is important because baptizing is linked with the cognitive process of discipling, uh, teaching. Those, all those things go together. A disciple is one uh, who is cognitively involved in submitting and following his master. So just from the very outset, I think it's important to acknowledge that that baptism is set apart as a cognitive reality. It's a part of that cognitive uh, choice. Now, it is interesting as we observe this, uh, this is a bit of a side note, but it actually helps prove the point in one sense. Uh, one of the reasons paedo-baptists often would say paedo-communion should be denied to those who have not made a profession of faith is because they claim it's clear that the Lord's Supper demands a cognitive reality of the individual. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, it says that an individual must examine himself. So, typical Reformed paedo uh, Baptists will say, well, obviously an infant cannot examine himself. Therefore, an infant, a child cannot be uh, a participant in the communion of the church. Now, I think that's interesting because that's very much in line with the argument that Baptists end up making is that baptism in and of itself is always described as a cognitive act. And so in and of itself, uh, an infant cannot participate in that cognitive act. 
So it's, uh, I, I think that's interesting, uh, is from the outset, uh, Matthew 28 does paint this, uh, picture as a cognitive act as part of the discipleship process. But, uh, the main point here that I want to draw with regard to our discussion of baptism is that as Jesus is giving the marching orders for the church and talking about baptism, our understanding of baptism ought to be found in the gospel of Matthew and in the ministry of Jesus and also John. Because if we're following the, it really goes back to the principle of authorial intent. If a author is using a discussion by an individual, in this case, Jesus talking about baptism without any qualifications about what baptism is, what that looks like, then it would stand to reason that that was well known and defined earlier on in the book. So when you look at how Matthew has talked about baptism, obviously John the Baptist cannot be ignored. So I would argue strongly that John the Baptist forms the definition of what baptism should look like. And as that is linked with Jesus's baptism, then you have this normal continuation, which is very natural from the authorial intent. And then that is the understanding of what baptism would be. So if you look at Matthew 3, for example, John the baptizer is introduced. And in verse 1, we're told John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And his message in verse 2 was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we're quickly told that John's message included the necessity of repentance. And then in verse 5, it says that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And in verse 6, it says they were being, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So notice that that is the, uh, modifying phrase that they were being baptized. That's the main point. But the way that they were being baptized was it included the confession of their sins. Okay. Now in verse 11, John includes his own statement there saying, I baptize you with a water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So one of the distinctions that Reformed Paedo-Baptists try to insinuate is that John the Baptist's baptism is different than Jesus's baptism in the sense that repentance was included in the baptism of John, but it was not included for the baptism that Jesus uh, practiced and his followers with regard to the church. Now, as Mark and Luke explain, I, I just want to point out, by the way, that Matthew is not alone in this description of John. In Mark 1.4, uh, we're told that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 3 also adds to that. It says that he went out into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this is present in all the Gospels. It's not just Matthew. Just wanted to be clear about that. John's baptism was very much in line with repentance, confession of sins for the goal of forgiveness. That was That's important, right? Now, the, the reason that this is so important uh, we could just think about it from this, this perspective here is if John's baptism is linked with the baptism of Christ, uh, what I mean by baptism of Christ is not his personal baptism, but, but in reality, those who are baptized in his name, then there should be similarities between the two. And we actually find that being the case in John chapter four. In John four, uh, and this is something that a lot of people don't necessarily remember or know, but Jesus actually baptized people before 
he was crucified, before he was uh, raised from the dead. And we're told in John 4, 1 and 2, uh, now that now when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, then it says goes on to say Jesus uh, withdrew. So what's the what's the main point here? Well, what we're being shown here is that John's baptism and Jesus's baptism were cooperative. They were operating at the same time, and the assumption that we would be justified to make, I think, exegetically, would be that they were very similar. So the Pharisees are looking at the baptisms, not seeing a major difference, but seeing a similarity here. Now, what would those similarities be? The similarities would be repentance, presumably, and identification with the one whom you're following. So, for example, somebody's going to be baptized by John if they are identifying the fact that, hey, I'm going to follow John's teaching, and then somebody's going to be baptized with Jesus if they are identifying with Jesus, saying, I'm going to follow his teaching. Now, it's interesting because Paul Jewett, in his famous book, Infant Baptism and the Covenant of Grace, has this to say about this passage. He says, quote, if infants were not baptized by John, with whose baptism Jesus and his disciples presumably were baptized, and after whose example they also baptized others, see John 3, 22 through 4, 3, it is hardly plausible to suppose that at Pentecost, the disciples began to do something for which there was no precedent in John's baptism, end quote. And this, this is a significant argument. The the point being that if John's baptism is a baptism of repentance and he was not baptizing infants, then why would we assume since Jesus's baptism is modeled after John's, presumably because of John 4, why would we presume that after Pentecost, all of a sudden there's a massive switch and people start baptizing infants? That would be, that would be the point. Uh, we, we would not naturally assume that because remember, before all this takes place, those who are being baptized by John are still circumcising their children. So there would, there would be no need, uh, at least if there's a link between circumcision and baptism, which I reject anyway. If, even if that is the case, if there was a link, that just wouldn't happen. So the baptism that was taking place in John's day, almost everybody would acknowledge that it was not including children. And paedo-baptists usually acknowledge that fact as well. They just say that it's different than the baptism of Jesus. But the issue is, why are we saying that? Is there any exegetical justification for that? When in reality, it looks like there's a connection between Jesus's baptism and John's baptism. Now, as we even examine John 4, by the way, uh, the, the big exegetical takeaway is the verbs making and baptizing disciples. Both of them take the object of disciple. So the clear connection is is really twofold. On the one hand, there's a, a link between baptism of John and Jesus. We talked about that. But, but in reality, baptism and discipleship are also linked. Uh, just like we saw in Matthew 28, we also see here that when you make a disciple, you also baptize a disciple. So in other words, those who follow somebody are baptized in the name of that individual. So... What we would see here, taking away this, this implication from the text, is that one who is baptized is being baptized as an expression of identification with and a pledge of following this individual. 
Now, what, what's also interesting as we continue to follow this idea of John's baptism is what happens in Acts 19. I'm just going to make a, a note on this in passing. In Acts 19, we're told that Paul passes through the inland country, comes to Ephesus, and there he found disciples. But we're not told whose disciples they are. And it becomes obvious that they are disciples of John, not of Jesus. And so in verse 2, it says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. And in verse 3, he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So these are very clearly John's disciples baptized by John. And verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And then in verse 5, we have the statement on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So in other words, they realize, oh, well, John was was working towards something. His his baptism was not an, an end in and of itself. It was looking forward to ultimate identification with Christ. And so that was the step that they took then. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which is a very common formula in Acts about when people are baptized, they are baptized in the Lord or in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so that's that's the reality. So even in Acts 19, we have exegetical examples of individuals who recognize that they need to submit to Christ and that's how they profess their allegiance to Christ is being baptized. Notice these individuals were already baptized uh, by John, but they are being, uh, to use the term rebaptized. They were being rebaptized because their affinity must be with Christ, not with John. So I think that, that that's telling how people were to understand baptism. So if we just summarize the Gospels and Acts and how, how all this lays out, uh, it seems clear that those who were baptized by John were done so strictly on the basis of volitional repentance. It wasn't on the basis of families or national standing. In fact, we're told explicitly when uh, you have some of the Jewish leaders come to kind of investigate John in Matthew uh, 3, 9, uh, John tells them, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So what John's saying is that it doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter what your lineage is. Uh, all that matters is your personal repentance. That's what matters. And that's what his baptism signifies. And John's baptism was always Christological. He was always looking forward to the Messiah. Not He wasn't saying he himself was the Messiah. Of course, that was even part of what he was asked. And he said, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the prophet. I'm just you know heralding uh, the Messiah. And when we look at how these passages, specifically Matthew 28, as well as John 4, talk about making disciples and baptizing them, they are, they are linked. So the volitional cognitive idea of being a disciple, you can't be a disciple without intellectual involvement, that is baptism and the making of disciples are linked, right? So we, we understand that. And I would say too, when we think through this, it's, it's important uh, to recognize that baptism then becomes, as we as we just saw, a a 
uh, pledge of allegiance, if you will. Uh, Acts 19 is a good example of that where individuals are, are recognized, okay, I need to be baptized in Jesus' name now, even though John's baptism was good, right? It's not saying that John's baptism was wrong for these individuals to do. They're not repenting from John's baptism, but they're, they're going further now and showing their allegiance to Christ. And so that's, that's important. Now on that, that, that point is actually solidified when we turn to the epistles. So when we talk about baptism in the epistles now, you come to 1 Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians 1, 13 through 15, uh, and I should say one of the main issues for the Corinthian believers was that they were unfortunately involved in a lot of cliquish behavior. So, you know, you had some saying, I'm of Paul, some saying, I'm of Paulus, whatever. You had these, these cliques, these groups, these uh, divisions in the church, and those were not good. So in arguing against that, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 13 through 15, he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, that's an interesting phrase there in verse 13, where he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Why would that contribute to Paul's argument? That's that's the question. And I think the the major point here is that Paul is saying, you were not baptized in my name. Uh, you were not, you, you did not identify yourself as a follower of me. You identified yourself as a follower of Christ. That's, that's the point is that you were not baptized in my name. You were baptized in, in the name of Christ. And so he goes on saying, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. So in other words, the link here is between baptism and allegiance or discipleship to be baptized in someone's name, in this case, Paul, would be to declare yourself their follower and demonstrate allegiance to that individual, in this case, Paul. So in other words, Paul's saying, listen, you weren't my disciple. You didn't declare allegiance to me. You declared it to Christ. And so that's a big part of Paul's argument, which, like I said, this isn't just, this, this is the, this is the solidification solidification of the argument we already made in the Gospels, where baptism is linked with discipleship. And so Paul, too, here brings that point out, saying that, listen, baptism is linked with this allegiance, and you don't have allegiance to me, you have allegiance to Christ alone. Now, as we go through uh, the latter part of 1 Corinthians, we are introduced to other elements of baptism here. And I think that the big takeaway as we go through this, I want to try to introduce some of these passages this way, is that we've already talked about how baptism and faith are linked, and a lot of these passages are going to show that. But I also want to to just say, listen to how Paul and Peter talk about baptism, and just ask yourself a question, is, is there any room in New Testament theology for somebody who is baptized that is not a Christian? just in the descriptions that are given. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul writes, In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So if you note the context here, uh, in verse 3, Paul says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, he says, There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And then in verse 7, he says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So in other words, it's very clear that he's pointing out that believers have received the Spirit 
And that's the Spirit gives gifts to the believers to manifest and to work for the common good in the body of the church. So in other words, the Spirit uh, is present for all the New Covenant members. We talked about that with the New Covenant promise. And Paul's point in verse 13 then is that this Spirit uh, was given to all who were baptized. So all who are who are baptized are made to drink in one Spirit. So in other words... That there's obviously a link between those who have the spirit and those who are baptized, 100%. And also he's, he's saying we all were baptized into this body and this body, as Paul has just described, is, is manifesting and working out the gifts of the spirit. So his assumption is that these are believers. Now it's, it's interesting because even, uh, even when we think of, uh, Baptists and Reformed Paedobaptists, they do acknowledge that this, uh, discussion of baptism is likely talking about water baptism. Now, I should say that there are some people who would who would say that this is something that's known as as spirit baptism. That's probably another podcast episode, honestly, because the question is whether or not there is such a thing as spirit baptism, or whether or not when the Bible is talking about baptism, it's it's always talking about baptism. And Calvin, who is you know the prototypical you know uh, progenitor uh, in many ways of the theology of reformed pedo baptism he did acknowledge that this was talking about water baptism and so he he says this his this is his quote from first corinthians his first corinthians commentary he says quote he speaks however of the baptism of believers which is efficacious through the grace of the spirit for in the case of many baptism is merely in the letter now notice what he's saying there uh He's saying he's saying that Paul is talking about uh, baptism, which which works, which baptism, which is efficacious in the grace of the Spirit. But then he says, as a qualifier, in the case of many, and he's obviously talking about children there. In the case of many, baptism is merely in the letter, the symbol without the reality. That's I forgot to finish the quote there, but the symbol without the reality. So in other words, in Calvin's commentary, and we're going to see this in his comments on some of these other passages as well, Calvin's saying, yeah, Paul's talking about baptism for a believer, but we know that that's not the case for everybody. So I'm just going to throw that out there is that, you know, I would question whether or not that is exegetically defensible from the text. Paul seems to be saying this is the case. Uh, we were all, that's pretty exhaustive language, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So I would say the assumption here in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is those who are in the church are spirit-indwelled believers who have been baptized, and they're all believers. In other words, there's no place in the church for unbelievers. Now, let's let's go on to another passage here with regard to that. In Galatians 3, in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, we have a very interesting text here where Paul says, For in Christ Jesus... You all are sons of God through faith. So notice there that the access to sonship, our access to sonship comes through faith. And the explanation of that, the further explanation in verse 27 is, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So in other words, this is, again, the logical inferential conjunctions here, the four, F-O-R, in verse 27 is further explaining 26, 
saying, you know, this is, this is the understanding is that we're sons of God through faith for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So Paul's clearly identifying saved individuals, those who are sons of God through the exercise of faith. And he's saying those are the ones who are baptized. And notice that those who are baptized are those who also have been, who have put on Christ. So the simple question is, can an unbeliever put on Christ? Well, I think everyone would have to say no. And so we acknowledge that Paul very clearly is talking about believers here, those who have exercised faith with baptism, obviously. Faith and baptism are linked, just like we've made note many times. And those who have put on Christ. So the the implication is that those who are defined as being baptized are those who have put on Christ and are believers. Now, again, let's let's look at what Calvin has to say about this, right? So Calvin, again, says, uh, and this is... Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to read it, okay? Because this is, you know, I love Calvin. I really do. I think he's a super smart guy. Obviously, we're indebted. But it's things like this which make me just question it. So he says, But the argument that because they have been baptized, they have put on Christ, appears weak. For how far is baptism from being efficacious in all? So what he's saying there, catch his argument, is he's saying, Paul's argument that everyone who has been baptized has put on Christ, is weak because we know that that's not true. That's his argument. He says, for how far is baptism from being efficacious for all? So again, this is, this is, um, this is Calvin. He's saying, it seems like Paul is, is making a weak argument because we know that baptism doesn't apply to believers. That's what he's saying. So again, that's very circular in his, in his argument. Uh, and so his explanation as he goes on, by the way, I, I'm not misrepresenting him here. As he goes on, he says that Paul must be just talking about believers here, but we know that, uh, believers who, who get baptized, they confess Christ and they get baptized, but we know that there's other uh, ways of baptism as well. So, I mean, you think about this. I, I would, I would just ask, um, you know, is why, why are we trying to qualify this? If this is a blanket statement saying all those who are baptized have put on Christ, uh, I mean, that seems to be pretty clear. Uh, it, and he, he's also identified this as being, uh, you all are sons of God through faith. So in other words, he's addressing the entire church. Uh, so it would be one of those things where I guess I would be justified in asking if, if he's saying you all are sons of God through faith, wouldn't that, uh, is, is that going to include, are we saying, are we just going to assume that there are no children in, in the church there? Uh, are we going to assume that? Um, and of course I use that as an argument because, because I would be saying from the Pado Baptist viewpoint, somebody would argue from Ephesians six that children are assumed to be, um, members of the church, uh, we talked about this in a prior episode, how they, they are assumed to be members of the covenant community, in other words, but they're not necessarily saved. But my point is that Paul assumes that everyone who is a part of the church is a son of God through faith. Now, there may be children in the, in the presence there who are, who are being trained in, ad, in admonition of the Lord and, and discipled in a far view sense, but they haven't exercised faith yet. But in Paul's words here, he's saying that I'm addressing the church, which are those who are sons of God, who have exercised faith and have been baptized. That's, that's, that's the true church, the new covenant community in, in Paul's words, who have put on Christ. That's the, that's the definition that Paul's making. So I, 
obviously reject Calvin's kind of argumentation where he says, you know, Paul's making a weak argument here because we know that uh, baptism isn't efficacious in all. So that's that's Calvin's argument here is, is, you know, we know that baptism isn't like this, so Paul has to be doing something else. Now, let's go on to Romans 6. Romans 6 is similar to Galatians 3 with regard to that. In Romans 6, we uh, really, the whole section is about verses 1 to 11, but for sake of time, we will just focus on 1 to 5. So in verses 1 to 5, we read, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So that's uh, Romans 6, 1 to 5. And notice that, again, he's identifying that all of us who have been baptized were baptized into his death. So in other words, those who have experienced baptism have been baptized into Christ's efficacious death, his substitutionary death. That's that's the point. And this, by the way, is often appealed to, rightly so, I believe, as the prototypical definition and theology of baptism. And this is why we understand, which is a discussion we'll have in a little bit, uh, why the mode of baptism is important, why immersion is important, because it typifies and symbolizes this reality. The immersion into Christ's death and the continuation of that immersion into his resurrection life, raised in newness of life. And so I would I just point it out this way, is that in every case in the New Testament, baptism is assumed to relate to believers. And when it's defined, when it's explained, when it's described as a symbol like here, it's talking about conversion and salvation. And I think that that's why I mentioned Waymire uh, earlier on uh, and and he and I would be in a complete agreement with this is that the, the significance of baptism as it's described in New Testament is the most powerful argument against paedobaptism. Because as you let the New Testament define baptism, I mean, this is a case in point. Baptism is identified very clearly with the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's not applied to an infant. It's not even in a reformed paedobaptist's words. In fact, uh, again, I'll point back to Calvin just because I think it's it's interesting to see what he says on these passages. And this is what Calvin says. He says, quote, It is beyond any question that we put on Christ in baptism and that we are baptized for this end, that we may be one with him. You know, complete agreement with him on that. But then he goes on to say, It is hence evident that when we become partakers of the grace of Christ, Immediately, the efficacy of his death appears, but the benefit of this fellowship as to the death of Christ is described in what follows. So, in, in other words, he's he's saying exactly what I would agree with um, here. Uh, he, he's saying we've we've been identified with Christ. We his 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 death and resurrection are efficacious to us, etc. But then, as he goes on to explain this, he says, "quote It is not to the point." to say that this power is not apparent in all the baptized. 
Uh, so in other words, what he's saying is it's not Paul's point to say that this is true for everyone who's baptized. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and say that, uh, that that's pretty much the opposite of what the text is saying. He's saying all of us who have been baptized in Christ were baptized into his death, et cetera. And notice this is, this is the weakness, uh, because he's basically saying we know this isn't true for everyone. And he says that in the three passages we just talked about. He's saying, he's saying, I know that this is talking about believers in baptism, but we know that this isn't true for everybody. That's Calvin's argument. And I think that's extremely weak. And I think that if you're just being intellectually honest, exegetically honest, you have to come to full grips with the fact that this, these passages are talking about all those who have been baptized. I'm just quoting Romans 6 there. All of us who have been baptized have been baptized into his death. Now, what a Pado Baptist will say is that, okay, it's, it's efficacious for those who are believers, but for an infant, it's, it's something to look forward to. It's a promise that if they do believe, then this will be true. But where in the New Testament is, is that definition given? It's not given. That's the problem is that there's very clearly a definition in these passages of those who are united with Christ. There is salvific efficacy. That's probably the first time I was ever able to say efficacy with such flair. Efficacy. There's salvific efficacy in baptism with regard to what it represents in reality, in truth, in fact, not in potential. And so that's a really important point. And so I repeat again, the New Testament knows nothing of a powerless baptism or a potential baptism. A baptized individual is somebody who's assumed to be fully committed to God, exercising faith, and a fully embraced son of God who has put on Christ. In the, in the words of Galatians 3, in the words of Romans 6, somebody who's been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Now, somebody might say, uh, well, what about apostates? I would just say, so, so in other words, what about, uh, Simon or, or in the New Testament, uh, Simon or, you know, plenty of people who get baptized and then turn their back on God. Isn't that a powerless baptism? And I would say that there's a difference, uh, between, uh, apostates who the New Testament is, uh, seems to be clear that we can't recognize who an apostate is until after the fact. So they look like believers. They make the profession of faith. They look like believers until they fall away. They're the, they're the, the type of soil where there's immediate growth, but then when the trials come, they fall away. And it's not our job to say, oh, I, I bet you that person's going to be an apostate. No, that's, that's not the issue. The apostates are exceptional examples, but that's, that has nothing to do with baptism in and of itself. It has to do with us not being able to see the heart. Now, the issue is that somebody who's baptizing those who make professions of faith, it's not a powerless baptism. Um, it's just an acknowledgement of the fact that there are, uh, apostates, those who are, who are deceived and capable of deceiving others. The issue is for, uh, ultimately for paedo-baptists, uh, they are intentionally adding unbelievers to the church by baptizing them and treating them as full-fledged covenant members in the community. And that's, that's dangerous. Now, moving on, I mean, there's, there's more that Paul says about baptism. Looking at Colossians 2. In Colossians 2, 11 and 12, we read, In him, talking about in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Now, right here, this is a favorite verse for uh, Reformed Pedobaptists, 
because they say, well, look, circumcision and baptism are linked. And in one sense, it's true, but not the way that they, they are saying. Um, on the one hand, it's, it's not physical circumcision here that's being mentioned, but the circumcision made without hands or the way Paul describes it, the circumcision of Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, we actually have the precursor of this called the circumcision of the heart. Now, circumcision of the heart is equivalent in pretty much everyone's terminology with this idea of regeneration. So baptism is a, is a, is a symbolic representation of regeneration to be sure. And so that's why Paul is making this connection here between the spiritual circumcision, the regeneration of the heart, the circumcision of the heart, this renewal, which, which Christ himself has brought and linking that, uh, in, in a way here with baptism, which, which is important. But it's not saying that circumcision of the Old Testament in the physical sense is being linked here. Uh, that would be adding something to the text here. It's a circumcision without hands. It's a circumcision of Christ. So it's a, it's a spiritual reality. But notice what else is going on here. And I think this is a really important uh, observation to make. It's the same imagery as Romans 6. You have been buried with him in baptism. In other words, your identity, your union with Christ is there. And then notice also this last phrase, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So that's something that's often not brought through, but I think it's important to observe here is that here's yet again another reference to faith being involved with baptism, right? It's all over the place. Whenever you're looking at baptism, the assumption is that these are individuals who are making a volitional commitment through faith to God, right? So that's that's a really important point to make with regard to how we should expect baptism to be operative. Now let's jump over to uh, the apostle who bears my name, or I guess I should say I bear his name. In 1 Peter 3.21, this, action, this passage is often identified by scholars as being the closest uh, in, in the New Testament that we get to a definition of what baptism is. So notice what it says here in 1 Peter 3.21. Peter writes, baptism, which corresponds to this, and the previous verse, it talks about the destruction of the water through Noah's flood. So baptism corresponds to this destruction of the water uh, now saves you. So baptism now saves you is the main phrase. And then the uh, descriptive phrase is which corresponds to this talking about the destruction that the water brought on the land. So in other words, baptism somehow symbolizes the destructive force of the water in Noah's time. And most scholars, and I would agree with this, uh, interpret this as when you submerge under the water, it's it's the symbol of you are dying to self. You are being u- united with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ lives within you. So you've died. You've been destroyed. You're united with Christ. And then you are raised in newness of life. So baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, notice his clarifying note here, not as a removal of dirt from the body, so in other words, it's not just the getting wet or, or being washed that actually saves you, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So notice that that's the, the operative power here. The, the power that saves you is the resurrection of Christ Jesus. But what baptism is, that saves you uh, through the resurrection of Christ, obviously, but 
Notice what baptism is defined as. It's not the removal of dirt from the body, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. So notice that this, again, uh, gives a very, very strong argument for a volitional aspect of baptism. So in other words, how how is it that an infant could be baptized and be said to be making an appeal to God for a good conscience? How could the infant be asking God to cleanse him, to save him? I mean, that in essence, that's what's being said here. Uh, of course, you know, maybe a pedo Baptist would come back and say, well, this is true for those who make a confession of faith, uh, those who are adults who are able to do that, but for infants, it's different. And I would just say, exegetically, where are we warranted to make different baptisms, one for adults, one for one for infants? Baptism is always defined as one reality. And so when we think of this, I think it's, it's worth noting and asking, uh, when baptism is described as this volitional ask, this volitional uh, question, this, this desire, this request to God for a good conscience. By the way, that word, eperotema, in, in the Greek there, some people uh, translate it. In fact, maybe your translations might have as pledge, uh, which would actually be even a stronger argument because for this volitional idea because it would be a pledge saying, you know, I pledge to God that I'm going to be so-and-so and whatever. But it, I think it makes much more sense uh, to read it as, as a desire or a request as part of the de- baptism experience to request that God would cleanse your conscience um, in salvation. And so – First Peter 3.21 does give uh, strong evidence again of what uh, baptism is. Now, if we, if we think about this and try to summarize where we're at uh, so far in thinking of what is baptism in the New Testament, I think it's very clear that it's a public expression of allegiance for a disciple to his master. I think that's provable multiple ways. Uh, also, throughout the New Testament, faith and repentance are intrinsically linked to baptism. Not really any question about that as well. Uh, baptism also, as we just saw, is defined as a believer's, uh, expression of a believer's faith to request a cleansed conscience. And then we also have, uh, I think very clearly, uh, as we've looked through all of these New Testament examples, there's no hint in the New Testament of somebody who has been baptized, who is not a full-fledged son of God, having received the full expression of the Spirit and having put on Christ. Uh, which I might add as well has a fully efficacious relationship with Christ in atoning for his sin through the death and resurrection. So that's what uh, baptism is defined as in the New Testament. That's why I would say this is the strongest argument for uh, the credo Baptist viewpoint, because as you examine what scriptures talk about, just exegetically, you don't have to, you don't have to do like what Calvin was doing saying, well, we know this isn't true. We know this isn't true. Well, that's not a great argument. Really let the text speak for itself. The text says this is what baptism is and this is how it's defined, how it's applied. And that's how we interpret the text. That's, that needs to be always our motivation in thinking through these things. Now, let's, let's talk, now that I've given that positive presentation, I also want to try to work in, um, how the Reformed Pado Baptist will, will talk about the significance of baptism from their perspective. And so I, and I will acknowledge that there's, there's probably likely different ways that different authors could express this, but I've tried to accumulate a couple different quotes to synthesize what is the common belief here. 
So I've, I've kind of tried to distill it into three parts. I'm sure there's, there's more. For example, I think, uh, one thing that I won't note here is that I think a lot of Reformed Pado Baptists would acknowledge the union of Christ, uh, within baptism. Like Romans 6 very clearly teaches that and links that with baptism. So they're not going to deny that reality, but they're going to add other things to qualify why it doesn't always apply efficaciously to the infants that are baptized. So I'm not going to mention that as one of their aspects, but I'm sure most paedo-baptists would agree with me on Romans 6. At least in theory, it's just on who's allowed to be baptized that doesn't um, necessarily apply. So the first point would be for the Reformed paedo-baptists that baptism is God's testimony, not man's, and therefore it's unrelated to faith. So we've talked about this in a variety of ways, but uh, Robert Booth in his book, Children of the Promise, the biblical case for infant baptism, he says one difference between Baptists and Reformed Paedobaptists has been the Baptistic notion that baptism is the subjective testimony of the individual believer, his profession of faith, the Christian man's badge of profession, he calls it. The scripture indicate that the covenant is sovereignly initiated by God, not by man, and therefore that the covenant sign and seal is God's, not the believer's. It is God's message uh, is sign to man, not man's sign or message to God. Uh, and that's uh, how, how Booth describes it. Now, I would say on the one hand, I think that this can be well, let's put it this way. I think that this can be seen as as a huge difference between Baptists and Reformed uh, Paedobaptists, but it shouldn't be because most Baptists, at least that I know, acknowledge that baptism is not. Uh, it's not. Uh, look at the look at what I'm doing. Uh, well, I should say, yeah, I say most Baptists that I know because because I am technically Reformed, but I could see how Arminians and things like that would say, okay, baptism is your doing. It's your work or your uh, explanation. I'm not saying that that's how they would have to do it, but I could see that being the case in some Arminian circles, but that's not related to one's view of baptism as much as it's related to one's view of soteriology. So with that in mind, I would say most people, when they acknowledge baptism, they're not saying, look at it's, it's my, uh, you know, feather in my cap or, you know, my, my great uh, achievement. I'm going to, you know, uh, show the world how great I am or things like that. No, I mean, even within the Credo Baptist circle, we acknowledge that we are symbolically representing what God has done in our lives. So in that, I actually agree. Uh, but I would disagree with part of the reasoning behind this because it's it's important for the Reformed Credo Baptist to remove the idea of faith. I think that faith can coexist with that, uh, with that symbolism. In other words, you can't just say, well, God's doing everything, um, and faith plays no part of that when it's very clear that the New Testament says faith does relate to baptism. I mean, that is, you know, beyond, uh, even, um, arguable in my mind. I mean, faith seems to be clear, clearly linked in all these passages. But remember, it's essential to allow for infant baptism in a reformed pedo Baptist approach. And so you have to remove faith from the picture. But I, I think that that's, that's a problem. So I, I would agree, baptism is God's testimony, but that doesn't uh, that doesn't negate faith, nor does it uh, negate the fact that baptism does function uh, as 
a testimony of man as well. So in other words, even though we are representing what God has done, it's also a public demonstration. There's, there's no such thing as a private baptism, in other words, right? And there's a reason for that, uh, because it is a public display of something. So in other words, there is, there is faith and there is personal volition involved, but it's not as if we're saying it's, you know, it's my badge of honor or something like that. All right, so that would be the the first thing that they would define define this as. Second would be that baptism signifies a cleansing of sin. So this is this comes from Mark Ross's chapter Baptism and Circumcision as Signs and Seals in the case for covenant infant baptism. He says, "So we see that both circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament signify a cleansing from sin, a removal of the uncleanness of sin, in neither case does the sign produce such cleansing. Rather, the signs testify to the truth that God cleanses from sin when one believes. Now, I would just say uh, I, I'm okay with that with regard to applying to baptism. I think there's a huge debate about whether or not that's true of what circumcision actually represents in the Old Testament, which again is probably another episode in the future at some point, but uh, we're trying to make this a somewhat reasonable length podcast instead of going uh, for four hours like we could. So I agree that baptism does signify cleansing of sin. And obviously a lot of Reformed Pedobaptists uh, would would quote the Heidelberg Catechism at this point in question 69. It talks about what the significance of the cross is. And the answer to question 69 would be, uh, that, thus that Christ has appointed the outward washing with water and added the promise that I am washed with his blood and the spirit from the pollution of my soul, that is from all my sins, as certainly as I am washed outwardly with water, by which the filthiness of my body is commonly washed away. So notice that that's, that's fine. I agree with that as well. There is a, there is a cleansing aspect to the washing that's given. The key difference is that the Paedobaptists argue that it's different for infants in that it's the symbol of potentiality. So in other words, as a Credo-Baptist, I would say, no, this is a actual symbol of reality, that Christ has done this for me. This is what I'm representing. But obviously, an infant Baptist uh, can't, uh, can't argue that way. So they would say, well, this is the, this is just a symbol, a reality of what potentially could take place if this, if this individual does embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior at a later time. But again, I would just say it's kind of, uh, I think exegetically, uh, unjustifiable to make a distinction in baptism between somebody who's baptized for the power and the reality of baptism and somebody who's uh, being baptized for the potentiality of, of that symbol. I think that that's unjustifiable. All right. Then number three, uh, baptism being linked with circumcision is a sign of God's ownership of an individual. Now, this is actually a pretty significant divergence in how I would think through this. So I'm going to spend a little more time talking about this. So baptism is a sign of God's ownership or a seal of God's ownership over an individual. So again, this is from Ross and his chapter on baptism and circumcision as signs and seals. He would say, uh, Abraham's circumcision, this is his quote, Abraham's circumcision thus functioned as a mark of ownership upon him, marking him as belonging to God and under the obligation to do God's will. Baptism in the New Testament carries an identical meaning. Uh, later on in that same 
page, which is 106 if you're interested. Uh, but when we understand baptism as a sign of God's covenant with us, we see that it is more a mark of our duty to God than our commitment to do that duty. And then he finishes off uh, one more quote. He says, I conclude that baptism and circumcision have the same meaning, both signify and seal by faith that we are cleansed from our sins and we have been consecrated to God to be his own. Now, we've talked uh, in a previous episode at length why there's uh, not a direct link between circumcision and baptism. So you can go back and review that episode. And I would encourage you to do that because I think that that is such an essential part to the Reformed Pado-Baptist argument. It deserved a lot of discussion. And there are, I think, quite a bit of problems in seeing a direct connection there. But I would also just add on a just very simple note, and I think this should hold power to those who are who are Christians who would hold to sola scriptura. Uh, I would just add that nowhere in the Bible is this theme of baptism being a mark of ownership or a seal on an individual found. Nowhere. Nowhere. It's it's an inherent part of the Reformed Paedo-Baptist system, but it's not a part of exegesis. And I don't mean that to be mean or anything like that, but it's, it's just not. You can't derive that exegetically. This idea of baptism being a seal of, of God's ownership on somebody just is not exegetically found anywhere. The only thing that it, the only way that they could argue that is linking circumcision and baptism together because there is no, uh, there is no place where baptism is, is recognized as the seal. In fact, the Holy Spirit is actually recognized as the seal in Ephesians 1. And so if the Holy Spirit is recognized as the seal of belonging to God, that would fit very nicely with the cradle Baptist view of the new covenant, where all those who are part of the new covenant are regenerated, who are truly sons of God, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that would, that would be consistent. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about this because Mark Ross, as I quoted here um, a couple times, he actually has a pretty extensive section in, in his chapter on this where he, he just talks about how this plays out practically. And I think it's helpful at least to talk about this uh, because it's, yeah, it's interesting uh, just to see how he reasons through this. And I think, yeah, just, just honestly, I think that there's, there's some helpful things to be gleaned from on why this doesn't work logically. So he, he goes and, and really in, in his pages 108 and 109 in his chapter on the baptism circumcision, uh, as signs and seals, uh, he goes into kind of a, uh, illustration, um, dialogue with how he, he typically talks about this issue. And so he says, quote, a common question posed to me as a pastor as I teach and instruct people about the meaning and significance of baptism in their own lives and the lives of their children is what does the baptized child have, which the unbaptized child does not? Now, this is a perceptive question because how is a baptized child and a non-baptized child differ? We actually talked a little bit about this in a pre- previous episode, but but the question is, he, he acknowledges that this is something that people are trying to work through. Um, and the assumption is that he's talking to Reformed Paedo-Baptists here as he's, he's teaching instructing. So he says this, why they have baptism, of course. And that's, that's his answer. Now he's giving that tongue in cheek, uh, in one sense, uh, I can appreciate that. You know, it's not necessarily helpful, but that's how he answers. But then he goes on to say, if they press him, he says, quote, it makes whatever difference baptism makes in the life of any person. Now stop right there for just a moment, because as we've been working through this issue, we'd have to say that that's actually not true, right? That's, that's, 
universally not true because uh, there are, as we look through the definitions of baptism in the New Testament, as it applies to believers, uh, it's it's clear that there's a difference between somebody who's being has been efficaciously united with Christ and not. So I think that's a problem. But he, this is this is his argument, and he says specifically. Quote, if baptism is a sign and a seal of God's covenant, then those who have been bap- those who have uh, been baptized possess this sign and seal, while the unbaptized do not. Now, what does that look like in everyday life, though? Uh, and and he goes on to actually uh, raise this objection, saying people will often push back, saying, "But what does that look like in real life? Because if you have somebody who has baptized their child versus somebody who has not baptized their child," how they raise their children is going to look very much alike, right? Because a godly parent is going to teach them what God expects from their children. He's going to teach the children that they need to repent. So what is the actual difference uh, between somebody who is baptized and somebody who's not since, since the obligation to repent and confess their sins is the exact same, the, the standard that parents hold, well, what is the difference? So Ross gives the following illustration. Um, and I think that this is one of those areas where when we think about this, I think it shows c- some of the illogicality of this. So Ross says, take two young ladies. Both have special young men in their lives. Both men are talking about marriage, making big promises, lifelong faithfulness, joint ownership of all that man, all that the man possesses, all on the condition, of course, of marriage and faithfulness from her. The ladies are treated equally in every respect but one. One lady has received an engagement ring while the other has not. Now, what does the engaged lady have that the other does not? Ross continues and says the what the one lady has that the other does not is the visible token of the ring does not alter the promise made, but it surely makes those promises more firm in the mind of the recipient. Likewise, the ring makes more firm the duties owed. For the engaged lady, receiving the ring has brought home to her both the promises and the duties in a much more tangible way. It is just this way with the baptized child who has something that the unbaptized child does not. Baptism baptism signifies and seals truths that are most precious. It shows that we do have a place within God's covenant, that we are called by his name, that his promises indeed have been given to us. The baptism does not guarantee that we have the possession of what was promised. That can only be guaranteed by faith, but the baptism can assure us that faith is enough. Now, on a side note, by the way, this is uh, actually how, before I talk about Ross's example here, as a side note, this is how, why some paedo-baptists like Doug Wilson are willing to call Catholics our brothers and sisters in Christ because they have been baptized and so given this this promise place in the covenant. And so Doug Wilson and some other Reformed paedo-baptists will say, um, as an evangelistic strategy, all you need to do is just go to a Roman Catholic and uh quote, grab them by their baptism and explain to them their obligation uh, to Christ because of their baptism or something like that. And uh, I think there are a lot of problems with that. But I just wanted to th- throw that out there as as why some Pedobaptists talk about Roman Catholics as being our brothers and sisters in the covenant, uh, in the new covenant. So my my response, though, there, there's a lot of thoughts, I think, on this. But, but first and foremost, 
uh, when we think about this idea, uh, I would say New Testament defines baptism differently than what we were just told. And I think that needs to be the, the, the primary thing here is that that illustration has some problems inherently, but regardless, even if it was a perfect illustration, we're defining baptism by an illustration. Um, not by, we're not letting the New Testament clearly define the fact, uh, the fact and definition of what the reality of baptism actually is. The Holy Spirit is the one who's referred to as being the seal of the covenant, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. I already mentioned that. And, uh, it's incorrect to view baptism, at least exegetically speaking, as that seal of the covenant. So if, and remember, again, this is this is why baptism and circumcision being linked are so important to the Reformed uh, tradition, because if they aren't linked, then there's really no reason to see baptism as a supposed seal or, or link uh, to the covenant. So I would just admonish uh, all of us to pay attention to how scripture defines things. Uh, and that would be, that would be my, my biggest argument. Now, second of all, uh, the analogy doesn't actually help because if you think about pedo baptism, it's infant baptism. So this doesn't make logical sense at all, Ross's illustration, because the analogy of the engagement ring assumes that there are two individuals who have committed themselves to each other with volitional decision, right? So, it would be a much different, uh, in order to make the illustration work, uh, he would say, now imagine two babies. One has a ring, the other one does not. Well, besides the fact that rings are choking hazards for infants, which I am well aware of, um, besides that fact, uh, it obviously changes the illustration quite a bit, right? Because the, the point being that uh, baptism or, or the illustration itself uh, is painted as a volitional, you are committing yourself to something. Um, and that is what controls you. Um, it's the ring is a symbol of that volitional commitment, but it's not actually, uh, the ring itself doesn't have any power. It's, it's actually of the volitional commitment. So I would say that actually works well with a cradle Baptist view, but not with the pedo Baptist view because, uh, an infant who has not made any volitional commitment to God at all, uh, there's not, what are you going to, the ring, as it were, ha- has no has no power. It has nothing that would compel an infant or a child to do anything because they had no say in the matter. Now, um, along with that, it's it's also claimed that a child will always carry around that sign and remember it, but that's not always the case because it's not like circumcision. It's not physical, and I would just. I just throw out, I mean, there's a couple of illustrations or ways that we could think about this, but I would throw it out this way. Consider any individual who's raised nominally Catholic or nominally even Presbyterian. Um, and I think, uh, well, it's, it's no secret that there are plenty of people who are, who are Catholic or who are, uh, Presbyterian, um, liberal Presbyterians, obviously, uh, who are baptized as they are a child. It's, it's maybe just a, a, uh, ritual for the family. They don't actually go to church. And so it's never brought up. Maybe, maybe even the, there's, there's problems in the family. They get divorced or, uh, tragedy strikes and the parents die. And that, that child has no remembrance of whether or not they were baptized. In fact, I've heard of situations in Presbyterian churches where it's, it's actually a big discussion among the elders and a individual who's actually come to, to faith in Christ. And the question is whether or not they should get baptized. 
And the individual says, well, I know that I was in a Presbyterian church for a little while, but I'm not sure if I was baptized. Like I, I was never told I, there's no record. I'm not sure if I, so, so it's, it's one of those things where, um, the claim is that this, this sign is always going to be a mark on an individual reminding them that they have an obligation. But the reality is there's no physical mark and there are plenty of, albeit exceptional circumstances, but, uh, cir- circumstances nonetheless where it's demonstrable that the baptism has no bearing on a child's life whatsoever. And so, uh, that, and that's just, uh, we're just addressing this from a logical standpoint, right? Because exegetically, we can always go back there and say, well, what, how the New Testament defines things is, is what's most important. But just thinking about it from a logical standpoint, uh, somebody making a claim that a child is always going to have this, this mark on them, which reminds them that they are gods, that's just not true. In fact, uh, I would say that what the only reason that is true is if you have godly parents in a church telling children what their obligation is anyway. And that would be, that would be what a, a godly parent would do, whether they were pedo Baptist or not. So again, you go full circle to Ross's analogy is what is the difference between an unbaptized child and a non-baptized child? Ultimately, there is no difference. Uh, if, if they are being raised in a godly home, there, there really isn't any difference in how they define that. Uh, it's, uh, and that's, that's, I know, I know a pedo Baptist would disagree with me, but it's at least from a logical standpoint, there, there really isn't a difference. Now, one other illustration that's, that's given at times, uh, Greg Strawbridge, who actually edited the book from the chapter that I just quoted by Ross, he at times, uh, will give the illustration of wedding vows, how a baptism could be. And it's similar to the illustration of the ring, um, and just saying, you know, the wedding vow compels you to act a certain way in light of your wedding vows. And that's similar to what baptism does. But again, like just giving an illustration here, um, let's say you promised to do something for somebody. Let's say you promised you would mow the lawn for your grandmother, but you just legitimately forgot. There was no ill will or malice. It just, you know, because you're a human being, it just slipped from your mind. Maybe you didn't sleep uh, for for weeks because, you know, you're, uh, you know, you had so much that you were serving the Lord for or whatever, but you just forgot, right? And so does a promise that you can't remember or you have no ability to recall impact your actions? Obviously not. And such a position would really be nonsense, right? And so now obviously a Baptist would counter saying, you know, like I, like I said, the children of believers are going to be reminded of that obligation or whatever, but that's not what we're talking about. That's something else. Uh, we're talking about family discipleship, evangelization of the children, talking about, uh, you know, raising kids in a, in a, in a godly way, talking to them about the standard God has for his creatures. That's all correct. But what we're talking about is baptism. What does baptism inherently do? And I think it would be illogical to say that baptizing infant, um, logically has some sort of weight upon that child to make them more predisposed to obeying God. It's not a sign or seal, uh, making, uh, making that child, uh, you know, reminded of that aspect. I don't think that that matters to them at all. In fact, the reason a wedding vow, going along with that, uh, illustration, the reason a wedding vow actually has power is because you're standing in front of a bunch of witnesses volitionally committing to a, something, uh, before God and man that this is what's going to be true of my life. And so, that's why it has power. Uh, if you have no concept, you had no choice in the matter. That has no power uh, whatsoever. So I think, you know, and 
I, I acknowledge that going through that uh, probably is a little harsh uh, with regard to it, but I do think it's hel- healthy and helpful to actually be challenged with regard to some of the logic as well of the pedo-baptist position. I mean, I'm more of an exegetical guy myself. I want to be because I think that's where we derive theology. But understanding that, um, I do think it's helpful to go through the logical conundrums and faults of the pedo-baptist position as well. Now, all that to be said, uh, we are only an hour and 11 minutes or so into the podcast, and I have more to say. I want to talk about the mode of baptism, um, and uh, I want to do it now because I don't want to do a whole new episode on the series. I want to be done with the series so we can move on to other things, uh, sad as that may be. But uh, so hang tight, or you know, you can pause the episode and do something else with your life if you want. I suppose because that's the beauty of podcasts. You know, you you don't need to listen to it all in one sitting. I suppose, but I'm going to talk about the mode of baptism and whether or not it matters. Like how significant is it? And I'm going to do so in brief. There's actually a lot more that I could say about this. Uh, James White actually has uh, two or three lectures on YouTube on the mode of baptism. And just gives a lot of good lexical and historical information on that. So I would point you to that if you want more information. But I think that we can just give uh, some summary of what uh, what's going on here. So with regard to the lexical information, by lexical I mean what does the word baptize actually mean? Uh, obviously we're dealing with a Greek word, baptizo. Uh, you have it transliterated into the New Testament, into our English uh, New Testaments, where we call it baptize, but what that doesn't help because the word is baptizo. And so when we say to baptize, what does that actually mean? And so all the major lexicons and scholars acknowledge that the main meaning of the word baptizo, the idea of uh, baptism, is immersion, right? And so that's if we were just translating baptize, we would translate it immersion. So we have been immersed into Christ. All those who have been immersed you know, that, that, that's how we would translate it. But instead, we've transliterated it. Now, as is always the case, when we think about how a word actually functions, there is what we call a semantic range of nuances or meanings. So the word is actually used, uh, because of its semantic range of ships sinking. So does a ship, uh, immerse? Well, yes, but that's not, the idea we often think of when we think of baptizing was a ship baptized. Well, yes, because it was sinking. It was becoming immersed. S- uh, similarly, the word also becomes useful for dyeing hair. So you could say, um, has your hair been baptized? You know, I encourage you all to say that to one another. You know, has your hair been baptized? Yes, it has. And therefore it is now pink polka dotted or whatever. So that, uh, it becomes, uh, a, uh, utilized for that so that in in Greek literature you can say that the hair was baptized meaning that it was dyed. Uh we in in English we have lots of illustrations of this where we take a word that means one thing but then it can apply to other circumstances. So for example the word to duck. You know, you duck, you duck your head, you you duck down under the table, whatever. Well, you know, you think of the phrase um Maybe it's, uh, I will duck, duck in to visit grandpa. I'm going to duck in and visit grandpa. Well, are you actually going to duck? Is that what's going on? No, but it's probably the idea has nothing to do with ducking per se, but the word developed a semantic range due to the idea of ducking being a quick movement. So the idea behind I will duck in to visit grandpa actually is I'm just going to visit grandpa quickly. 
that's, that's kind of the nuance of that. So when we think of these ideas of semantic range, we understand that the, the word can, can do a wide variety of things. I should say too, this, uh, else I be crucified by a pedo-baptist is that the word baptize can take the meaning of washing, obviously, because if you're immersing or if you're dipping something into water, you, you can wash it. So, so that is the context in certain, certain instances where something is being washed. You, you, you imagine like washing a plate. You know, you dip that in the water and you clean it, you wash it. Obviously, that can be the semantic nuance. Now, within the biblical usage, there is, uh, normally the usage of the baptizo root is utilized for the immersion and dipping of something. And in fact, there's, there's some examples, even in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where there's a difference between the idea of this immersion and the sprinkling, uh, sprinkling, uh, of, of water or blood or whatever. And that, uh, you can cross-reference Leviticus 4.17 for that. Now I'm, I'm going to quote a English translation of Leviticus 4.17 because it probably wouldn't be as helpful to read the Greek, but you have in Leviticus 4.17, the priest shall dip his finger into the blood of the calf and shall sprinkle it seven times before the Lord. So there you have a, a form of the word, uh, uh, baptizo, the root there, bapto. Uh, you have the priest dipping his finger and then sprinkling it, a different word, hrane, to, to, he shall sprinkle it seven times, uh, before the Lord. So there is a difference, at least in the action of, of dipping or immersing and also the sprinkling that's involved. So now that's, that's just a survey. There's obviously more detail we could go into that, but I just want to acknowledge that it's, it's for good reason that many Credo Baptists and Pado Baptists would agree with this lexical information. It's not really debated. Uh, but I think it's an important starting point because I just think it needs to be acknowledged that the most natural interpretation of baptism would be immersion. That is 100% true. Uh, it's, uh, verified by the church fathers, as we'll see, um, and just by the lexical information. The question really is that we'll see, uh, is whether it matters or not. So as you get into the New Testament too, we didn't talk about this with regard to how the gospels talk about baptism, but if you look at, uh, John's baptisms and the, and how the other baptisms are described, uh, it seems to be a very clear link between baptism by immersion, uh, in John's baptism and then those baptisms that follow. For example, we read in John 3.23, it says John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Now, why is it important that the water was plentiful there? Unless you needed lots of water to do baptism. Uh, Mark 1.5 says all the country of Ju Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Uh, Mark 1.10 says when he had come out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. So even Jesus's baptism there uh, was he was in the Jordan River when he was being baptized, which would pretty much imply that that's, uh, now would he go into the Jordan river to have water, uh, sprinkled on him? Um, unlikely, right? Uh, in John four, one to three, 
were also, uh, we pointed out this passage with regard to the link between Jesus's baptism and John baptism. Um, and we see that the, the Pharisees were, were seeing both of these take place and, and were equating them. Uh, now what's, what's interesting is that as these passages are linked, the assumption by the biblical author would be that these baptisms were being done in the same way. So if John's baptism almost certainly was done by immersion, just based on the evidence and what we saw and, and how they go down into the water, they come up out of the water, then the assumption would be that that's how Jesus's baptism would be done as well. In Acts, we actually see a link with this as well, where you have the Ethiopian eunuch, and we were told in verse 38 of Acts 8, he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So now some Pado baptists and I think I, I don't I think it might have been Sproul or maybe somebody else I've read quite a bit recently. So obviously it's hard to keep straight, but uh, Sproul was saying, well, just because somebody went down into the water doesn't mean that they were immersed. Well, that is logically true. Just because somebody uh, jumps into a lake doesn't mean that they are going for a swim. But I mean, is that really how we're exegeting now? Um, right? I mean, the exegesis involves using the most natural interpretation. So if somebody's going down into water, it would seem most natural that they are going to be dipped or immersed in that water if that's the word that's also used. So remember that that's something that goes with this is baptism as a word naturally means immersion. So why would somebody go down into the water if they were just going to have water sprinkled on them, right? So I just think it needs to be acknowledged that if we're, if we're fairly exegeting a text, we should acknowledge that immersion would be the most natural. And by the way, most, uh, again, some people might raise a stink about that, but most people would actually acknowledge that's okay. And, uh, that's fine. So the early church, uh, in fact, we have evidence from the early church that this uh, was the common understanding of that. So in the Didache, which is a early, early uh, church source, it's probably uh, one of the uh, first three sources that we have uh, from the early church. Some people date it to the first century, some people early second century. Uh, so the Didache gives the first instructions uh, um, on baptism, just very orderly that we have. And in chapter seven of the Didache, it says concerning baptism, baptize in this way, having reviewed all these things. So in other words, having instructed the uh, person who's in the baptism process, process, having taught them and instructed them, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in running water. And if you do not have access to running water, baptize in other water. If you are not able to baptize with cold water, baptize with warm water. If you possess neither, pour water on the head three times. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in other words, there's a distinction made there between baptism, immersion, and pouring water on the head, right? So very clear from the outset, uh, the Didache seems to assume that immersion is the normal way to do it, but then it makes allowance for, okay, if, if it's an emergency, if there's no water to immerse somebody, you can pour water on their head. So there is a uh, an element there uh, for immersion being the the norm. Now Tertullian, who uh, writes at the very outset of the third century, around 209 A.D., he's he's known as the first great Latin 
Christian writer of the West. He's uh, written quite a bit of material and it's helpful because his, his writings are in Latin. And so um, he talks about uh, in his section on the Trinity, he says, quote, after his resurrection, he promises in a pledge to his disciples that he will send them the promise of his father. And lastly, he commands them to baptize into the father and the son and the Holy Spirit, not into a unipers- unipersonal God, meaning like one, but triune. And indeed, it is not only once, but three times that we are immersed into the three persons at each several mention of their names. So in other words, what he's saying is, is that immersion is done. And he, he, by the way, makes an interesting point that he taught that we should immerse three times, one for the Father, one for the Son, one for the Holy Spirit. So uh, triune immersion, uh, but immersion nonetheless, right? So early on, even uh, in Tertullian, third century, there was still the belief that immersion should be the mode of baptism. Now, we're going to fast forward just for sake of time because I don't want you to hate me. So we are going to continue. And I just want to point out that even in the Reformation, the Reformed Paedobaptists in Luther and Calvin both held to immersion as being um, the, the display of baptism in the early church. So Luther, in his 1519 treatise on baptism, he says, uh, baptism is called in the Greek language baptismos in Latin mercio, which means to plunge something entirely into the water so that the water closes over it. Now, he talks about why baptism should be used, uh, why immersion should be the mode of baptism. This is Luther, who is a paedobaptist. And he says, this usage is also demanded by the significance of baptism. For baptism signifies that the old man and the sinful birth of flesh and blood are to be wholly drowned by the grace of God. So again, Luther, uh, and you know, like I like I've said uh, in I don't know if on this episode I've or in this podcast I've ever said it, but Luther does have some interesting things about his theology about how he. Uh, kind of changes around 1525. This was in 1519 that he wrote this, but he he changes his theology quite a bit. But it seems at this point that he is fully sold on immersion being, you know, the way that baptism should take place. Now, John Calvin, uh, obviously a uh, the poster child in many ways of the reform movement, uh, he says this in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, whether the person baptized is to be wholly immersed and that whether once or thrice or whether he is only to be sprinkled with water is not of the least consequence. Churches should be at liberty to adopt either according to the diversity of climates. Although, this is still Calvin speaking, although it is evident that the term baptize means to immerse and that this was the form used by the primitive church. So, Notice that Calvin here even is saying, um, on the one hand, he's saying, yeah, churches can do whatever they want, but we just, just so everyone knows that baptize means immersion, and that was definitely what the early church practiced. So, I mean, this is that, that's again, it very, it's very fitting that Calvin would say something like that, given his earlier comments on some of those New Testament passages. Because in essence, Calvin, again, is saying it's obvious that immersion is the meaning of baptism. And it's obvious that that's what the church did, but it doesn't matter. That's what Calvin is saying, right? We know that it doesn't matter. 
now again, that's that's pretty significant. So here would be having talked about the mode of baptism and just just painting the picture. I think that it's very clear lexically what the natural meaning of the term baptism would mean. Uh, it means immersion, the um, the immersion into Christ. Um, it's clear that that that's how the the Greek is formulated, both in extra biblical writing as well as in biblical writings. That doesn't mean that there aren't places where baptized can refer to washing, okay? But the most natural, most common use of that term is going to be utilized uh, understanding immersion. Now, it's also clear that 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 idea of immersion is essential to the New Testament theology of baptism. And what I mean by that is that immersion is is necessary to understand our identity with Christ, our union Union with Christ is not represented by sprinkling of water. It's represented by that, the full immersion, the death to self, the, the burial with Christ, and then the resurrection with Christ. So the New Testament theology itself of baptism really speaks to the need of the symbolism of immersion and the, the after effects of immersion, the raising from the dead as it, as it were. So, and that's, by the way, that's admitted uh, very clearly by Luther himself and other, uh, reformers. Now, so I point out all those things. It seems to be very, very clear uh, of what baptism is in the New Testament, and the mode of baptism seems to be spelled uh, out very specifically. So my simple question to, you know, the reformed Pado baptist obviously, is if it's so clear, if the basis for uh, for having immersion uh, being the, the main mode of baptism in, in the early church and all of that. If it's so clear, what is the justification for saying that the mode of baptism doesn't matter? That would be the, the question. Why doesn't the mode of baptism matter? As a credo Baptist, uh, I would say the mode of baptism does matter. But uh, a Reformed Pado Baptist obviously would say the mode of baptism doesn't matter. They, they would accept immersion as a valid means of baptism, but they would also accept uh, sprinkling of water. Uh, and so my question is, how are we exegetically justifiable to take a term which does refer to immersion naturally and to say and, and recognize that that is actually a command that's given to the church? If it's a command to uh, think about it like this, uh, the church is command to be baptized, but what if you what if you actually translated it instead of transliterated? What if the command actually was translated and it's and you recognized it as saying, um, uh, "Go therefore make disciples, immersing them." That that is the command, or or be immersed. That's the command given to the church is to be immersed in, and it, it, it's different. I think I think it would speak differently to us. And I think that that's a, a helpful thought process to, to go along. Well, I think that's more than anyone ever wanted on the issue of baptism. But this, this episode, in one sense, is, is my favorite in, in many ways, just because we really get to talk about what does the New Testament talk about baptism. And I hope it was clear uh, in how I presented it. But I would encourage you to go back, obviously, and do, do your own study on that. Don't just take my word for anything. I never want that to anybody who listens to this podcast. I, I want you to go test test the waters. See what I did there? So test the waters. Uh, see what these passages on baptism actually do talk about. The terms that are used, the reference that are used. Uh, 
look at the definitions of how Pado Baptist, Credo Baptist define these things, which which one uh, which position is being more faithful to the text? Ultimately, that's the question. Um, trying to uh, minimize the importance of systems with regard to that. And so I would encourage uh, everyone to look through those things. Now, this isn't the last episode we'll ever do on baptism, but I do look forward to doing a few different things in the future. And I do thank everyone for uh, reaching out, saying how much the episodes on baptism have been helpful. I do hope and pray that they have been. And and if there are questions on that, maybe uh, I would love to do a future episode dealing with some of the questions and things that have been raised through some of these episodes. Regardless, I hope and pray that they're helpful and useful to you. And if you have any questions or comments, you can always reach out to me. You can always visit the Shepherd's Theological Seminary website to view the upcoming classes. We have our winter term in December and January coming up, as well as the spring semester. So you can visit shepherds.edu for that schedule. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. 